Good morning. My name is Ralph, and I am the worship pastor here at Campus House, so it's fun for me to be able to talk to you in this kind of way today. Uh, I promise not to sing. I want to start this morning uh, with my takeaway from this poem that I read from a guy named Brian Zahn, and in this poem he's talking about the importance of story in today's culture. Um, and he talks about it by contrasting story with this, what he calls literalism, uh, which is another way of saying academia or scientific process, things that I'm sure we're familiar with here on Purdue's campus. Uh, and so this is kind of what I took away from that poem. Literalism can be at times a form of escapism. It moves us out of the crosshairs it makes information manageable. But there is another way to process. Poetry, allegory, parable, and story. They move through space and time. They get in your head. They haunt you. And I think that it can move us to transformation. So the reason that I shared that this morning, one, is because I think it's powerful and I think it's true. Um, and I think our culture has lost the art of storytelling. Uh, but I also share it with you because I think sometimes, uh, especially here, especially in this culture that we have uh, on, a, on a college campus, it can be tempting to look at scripture as a problem to solve. Uh, we can come to it in the same way we do math or science or psychology. We are trained to do it. We analyze it. We deconstruct it. We throw it up on the operating table and dissect it and leave it there a bloody mess. And that sounds terrible, but I actually love that. I love that process. It's invigorating to me to rip apart the etymology and get in the head of the translators, take each word just a little bit deeper. But we can't leave it there. We can't, we can't end at that process. Because the primary purpose of Scripture is not just to divulge knowledge. It's not just an information transfer. Instead, it is a beacon... It's much more beautiful. It's a, it's a beacon signaling the pathway to the divine. It's a torch in the hand of an explorer illuminating the cave of God's wonders. And its guiding light actually does have a terminus. It has a, a focal point, and that focal point is Jesus, the exact image of God, the perfect revelation of God's nature. God said, if you want to know what I look like, I look like Jesus. And the Holy Scriptures point us to him, not that we can just know about him, but that we can be with him. And so our relationship with scripture should never be one of a coroner performing an autopsy. Because scripture is God-breathed, so it has an aliveness to it. And so instead, we need to come to it as it is, in all of our knowledge and our commitment to study these good and necessary and important things. We've gotta read scripture as it is. It's a, it's a narrative, it's a story. Or as Brad Jersick says, it's a story going somewhere. It's a story about how God's good creation rebelled, causing pain and suffering to consume the earth, and how God initiated a rescue mission through a chosen people that culminated in God himself coming and giving his life to defeat death and restore all creation to himself. It's a story. And so I want to take the advice of Mike Cosper in his book, Rhythms of Grace, when he says, all teaching should be 
an Emmaus Road experience. If you're not familiar with that story, it's found in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus shows up to his disciples as they're walking towards Emmaus, and they don't recognize that it's him. And so he starts walking them through the entirety of Scripture, showing them how it all points to him. So hopefully today is a humble attempt at that, that we can look at 2 Kings in a way that points to Jesus because everything really does. And so we have been in the book of 2 Kings studying the lives of two drastically different prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And today we're going to continue with this narrative by looking at an incredible act of mercy by Elisha. And I'm going to resist the urge to delve into an academic reading of the passage, and I'm going to read it as a narrative. I'm going to do my best to bring us back to the central story, and in that to see what God wants to reveal to us today. I personally could use some prayer for that, so if you, if you would pray with me, let's pray together. Lord, would you give us today your wisdom? Help us to see you revealed as sovereign and glorious. Keep us from saying something that you are not saying. Keep us aligned to your word revealed in these scriptures. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into 2 Kings chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can flip there. I want to share what my hope is for today, just so we're on the same page. We all know where we're going. My hope is that for just a moment, this next 20 or so minutes, that we uh, can push back against a culture that wants to make each individual the center of their own universe. And instead to begin to think like Tolstoy, who says, we think that we are the hero of a grand story, but actually we are a minor character in someone else's story. And I don't think Tolstoy even knew how true that was because that other person, that someone else, is Jesus. And so my hope is today that we get caught up in that story. That our imaginations will begin to light up as we read the scripture and that this can be an exercise for us to allow the aroma of God's character to be weaved into the words and get caught up in him. So here we are in 2 Kings chapter 6. As most good stories begin, once upon a time, in the ancient Near East, Israel had a powerful enemy, Benadad, the king of the Aramaeans. Sorry for the pictures, these are not accurate. <laughs> Since his invasion of northern Israel decades earlier, Benadad had been gaining increasing control of the rich caravan routes leading westward through Israel to the Phoenician ports. Naturally, the Aramean economy flourished, especially in its economic center, Damascus. With this increase of power, Benadad was hungry for more. This meant war. So here we jump in at verse 8. One time when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, after consulting with his officers, he said, At such and such a place, I want to set an ambush. Okay, so let's leave the Aramaeans there in their camp planning an attack on Israel. Enter now the palace of King Joram of Israel. Now we know from the past few weeks, if you had King of Israel in your title, you weren't probably a good guy. Uh, and Joram was no different. But for Joe, as I like to call him, he was at least a little better than the last guy. 
who happened to be the worst, cruelest, most wicked king Israel would ever know, also his dad, uh, King Ahab. Now, Joram did remove the Baal stone his father had made, but he continued in the idolatry of the kings before him. So you could say this king was just another average Joe. No different than the other kings of Israel. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So in verse 9, we find King Joram sitting in his palace, planning for war, when a servant rushes in with an urgent message. It's verse 9. A message from the man of God. Watch out when you're passing this place because the king of Aram has set an ambush there. All right, so now we have a new character, this man of God. Enter now Elisha. I love what H.J. Howitt says about Elisha's title, man of God. What a sublimity there is in this simple language. What honor or title is ever to be compared with it? Abraham was friend of God. David was man after God's heart. Daniel was man greatly beloved. Elisha is God's man. All social distinctions that count so much with men sink here into insignificance. So Elisha is God's man, and we'll see one of the greatest foreshadows of Jesus himself. So apparently, Elisha had some insight into what Israel's enemy was planning. We jump into verse 10. So the king of Israel checked, uh, well, sent, he sent word concerning the place of which the holy man had warned him. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king, so he was on his guard in such places. As you can imagine, Benadad was as they say across the sea, a bit peeved. Verse 11, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Old Benny was certain that there was a rat among them, a spy. Someone was leaking Aramean war plans to the king of Israel, but Benadad's officials knew the real plot line. Verse 12, none of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. It's a little creepy. So now the king of Aram knows it's not a human spy, but a divine one. Some god is spilling the goods to Israel's prophet who informs the king in time to avoid all of their attacks. All right, now this is personal. The king sends men to find out where Elisha is staying. He gathers an army of horsemen and chariots, and he surrounds the city of Dothan, where Elisha was staying. The next day, Elisha is woken up by his servant, who is freaking out. Jump into verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So here we are in this famous passage. God opening the eyes of the terrified servant, and he sees that God is overwhelmingly the winning team. But the story doesn't end there. And I, you know, for some reason, they never finished this story in my Sunday school lessons. But I think it's even better. Here we go. Verse 20. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's jump back to verse 18. This makes more sense. 
As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria, which happened to be the enemy headquarters. So just to be on the same page here, we have uh, this army who comes to capture Elisha. He strikes them blind. The Lord strikes them blind. And then he says, actually, you're looking for someone else. And they're blind, so they can't really tell. And so he leads them uh, to the enemy headquarters. And here we are, verse 20. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. The Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. That's just a funny verse to me. As if it wasn't like a long trek, you know, <laughs> just, oh, how did we get here? Uh, when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, should I kill them? Do not kill them, Elisha answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your sword or bow? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And now get this, so the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So an enemy king sends an army, like an army, horses, chariots, soldiers, to capture one man, and instead they get struck blind, delivered to their enemy king, fed a feast, and sent back. That's some tactic. That's some story. And so... What do we take away from this? How is this story an Emmaus Road experience? How does it point to Jesus? And as I read this story over and over as I was prepping for this earth, three, uh, I'm going to call them plot lines to keep with our literary terms, that jumped off the page to me. The first one is this, you can't hide from God. If we look at the plight of Benadad, sitting in his bedroom, conspiring to do evil against Israel, God knew exactly what was going on. It seems that Benny didn't know Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. And apparently if I'm in my bedroom, you know what's going on. You can't hide from God. And Psalm 139 ends with an invitation to God. And I think that invitation is how we can begin to see what, how this applies to us how we can begin to see the folly of Benadad. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God knows what's going on. And so the right response for us is to partner with him in that knowing, to invite him into that. The second thing is this, don't fear. God is with us. This is the, the lesson of Elisha's servant. Don't be afraid. Our God is way bigger, and he is way better, and he's for us. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 7, this beautiful passage in Scripture, it prophesies the name of the Savior of not just Israel, but the whole world, and it's Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's why thousands of years later, we can be free from fear as well. Maybe not the fear of horses and chariots, but instead the fear of loneliness or failure 
or the collapse of the government or the loss of wealth or the loss of position or the loss of relationship. And still we don't fear because God is with us. There's this song from Elevation Worship called Overcome, and it was playing in the back of my head as I was uh, writing the sermon, and the lyrics to the chorus go like this. We will not be moved as the earth gives way, for the risen one has overcome. And for every fear, there's an empty grave, for the risen one has overcome. We will not be moved when the earth gives way, for the risen one has overcome. And for every fear, there's an empty grave, for the risen one has overcome. And the risen one is with us, and he's way bigger, and he's way better than you could ever know. And so we don't fear, for the God of love put death to death, and he reigns over all so that even death itself doesn't have the final say. But in Jesus, we have real life. We have fullness of life. Don't fear, God is with us. And the last thing is this, God's ways win. You can say that as many times as you want. It's pretty fun. But it's also really true. God's ways win. What we see at the end of this story is that God's way is always better. Even if in the moment, like King Joram, you could choose to seize an easy triumph in the ways of our world and the ways of our culture. But God, God's ways are better. How might the last sentence of this story have been different if the king had had his way? If that blind army delivered like literally into the center of their army and he decided to go ahead and kill them. How might the last sentence have been different? Would it maybe read, so the king of Aram doubled his warring efforts in Israel's territory and wiped them out? Thankfully, we don't know because instead this long battling came to an end because the one who had the right to issue judgment instead showed mercy. The one who had the right to issue judgment instead showed mercy. What a picture of Jesus, right? Jesus, the one who won the big victory, the big win, the final one. And how did he do it? By utter humiliation and death on a cross. What a foolish way for God to do his thing. But that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's folly. It's ludicrous to those who are headed for destruction. But for we who are being saved, we know it's actually the power of God. God's ways look dumb. God's ways look foolish. God's ways do not make sense to the world. But they are actually the power of God. So as we move to communion, I want to look at those three plot points through the lens of the gospel. And so if you're helping with uh, communion, you can go ahead and get that ready. I, I want to make sure that this is an Emmaus experience, that we can begin to see Jesus in this story. And so we begin with confession. We can't hide from God. But it is our tendency. And so the first thing to do is to confess and say, Lord, we, like Adam and Eve, tend to hide from God, to keep our sin, keep our shame, keep our life to ourself, even in its deception. And we take that prayer from Psalm 139, and we say, Lord, if there is anything in me that is not of you, take it. 
We don't want it. Show us how to live in you. We confess. And the second thing is to believe that God is actually with us, casting our, our fear aside. We believe that he made his withness permanent by dying on a cross, rising again, defeating the powers that keep us from him, and by placing his very spirit within us, both to make us like him and give us power to participate in bringing all of creation into the light of his kingdom. That's good enough. I'm going to read it again. We believe that we, he made his withness permanent by dying on a cross and rising again, defeating the powers that keep us from him and placing his very spirit within us, both to make us like him and to give us the power to participate with him in bringing all of creation into the light of his kingdom. We believe. And finally, we commit. Faith looks like something. If we've confessed the sin of hiding and we believe what he says, we've got to then surrender. We've got to then commit. Because what we do shows who we trust. It shows what we trust in. And the call to commit is the call of letting go of our pride and our self-determination. It's the call to echo Paul in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. It's not me. It's not my will. But it's the will of Christ who lives in me. And it's Romans 12, a living sacrifice. It's a daily living in God's way. Not conforming to the ways of the world which say, follow what you want. What do you want to do? Yeah, do that. And instead echoing Christ who in the garden before his very death said, not my will, but yours be done. We confess, we believe, and we commit to living aligned to his will. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to remember Jesus by taking communion today. And if you're not, I want to invite you to instead to pass the plate and take Jesus who saves. Communion doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. So take, take him and, and come talk to us afterward. We'd love to connect you with Jesus. Poetry, allegory, parable, and story, they move through space and time, and they get in your head, they haunt you, and they can move you to transformation. This story, scripture, everything, all of it points to Jesus. And we as the church have the privilege and the dignity of being a part of that story. Not just knowing it, not just assenting to it, but actually participating in it. When you join with Jesus, your stories are joined. With my wife, Emma, when we got married, our stories, they got joined. If one of us gets sick, the other one does too, not just because we share food and toothpaste, but if someone in our house is sick, the house is sick, and we deal with that sickness together. Her family tree is now my family tree, and mine is hers. My good day at work is her good day, and my bad day is certainly her bad day. So it is, it is no accident that Jesus called the church the bride of Christ. 
and that we're adopted into the family of God. Jesus' family tree becomes our family tree. His death and resurrection becomes our death and resurrection. His righteousness becomes ours. Is that not the gospel? But I think it, it even goes one step further because it's not just that we get his story, but he takes ours. Our story becomes his. Our hardships, our persecutions, they're his too. And that's why in Acts, when Jesus confronts Saul, who had been killing Christians, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people over there? Why are you hurting those Christians? No, why are you hurting me? He says, I am in them and they are in me. And so if you are hurting them, you are hurting me. This is my story now too. So I just wanna, I just wanna invite you, if there are parts of your story that maybe you are ashamed to be a part of Jesus' story, maybe it is your downfalls, your sins and your your failures. Or maybe it's the things that have been done to you, the, the suffering that you can't explain. Or maybe it's just general death and decay and darkness. Jesus actually wants those. He says, I want all of you because I paid for it. He wants all of you. And so if you want prayer for that this morning, we would love to, to pray with you. We'd love to connect with you and Jesus. We'd love to hear your story. And lastly, I want to I wanna send us out with this blessing from James K. Smith. He says, Worship like creation ends as it begins, with God's blessing. When we were called, we were blessed. And now as we're sent, we're blessed. We're not sent out as orphans, nor are we sent out to prove ourselves. No, the blessing speaks of affirmation and, and of a gifting that we go empowered for this mission graced recipients of good gifts, filled with the Spirit, our imaginations fueled by the Word to imagine the world otherwise. So would you go and join in this grand story of Jesus and go in the peace that Christ paid dearly and gladly for. Grace, how great death.